Hi, this is Savannah Saunders from The Wonderful World of Dance, and today I am honoured to introduce Russell Mellifant, one of Britain's most important choreographers creating work today. Russell Mellifant is, has received numerous awards for his creations that he's made with the likes of world-famous ballerina Sylvie Guillaume, the UK's Ballet Boys and the Lyon Opera Ballet, plus an extensive body of work from for his Russell Mellifant Dance Company. Russell's work is renowned for its unique approach to flow and energy and the exploration of the relationship between movement, light and music. So let's learn a bit more about this incredible choreographer and his company, which is set to celebrate its 25th anniversary next year. Hi, Russell. Hi there. Good to so see you. So lovely to have you. Thank you. So firstly, how have you been dealing with the lockdown and the whole COVID uh, pandemic and the ever-increasing restrictions that we're facing at the moment? Um, differently over the time, you know, it's been six, seven months and at the beginning of lockdown, I had just finished a season at the Coronet Theatre um, and that was that was quite intense. That was 13 performances in a row. Um, and I was also finishing a PhD. So I, I kind of benefited from having some time at the beginning. Um, and then, you know, of course the, it's, it, you know, sometimes it's nice to have time. It's nice to have a holiday in that, um, from some of the things you do all of the time. But as, as time goes on and uh, you, you don't have those things, um, it varies a, a lot, you know. You, you're you're lost with with certain elements that you know are a, a kind of necessity for your creative output. Or um, so, it, you know, it got a bit dark in some of there, and it was also difficult, you know, financially. Um, and then in August, um, I well, I was supposed to have been doing the National Youth Dance Company. It was my year to direct the company. And our performances were supposed to have gone ahead in April, which of course they got canceled. Then we were wondering, is this project going to be even possible? And together with um, Hannah and Joss who run the company, we got, uh, we had a plan that we could make it together, not as originally imagined for 40 dancers, but we could do it for 10 dancers four times um, and that way we managed to work with each group to um, to get something together and to have a performance on the stage at Sadler's Wells. Um, so we had a socially distanced process um, where I was directing them from the circle they were on stage. We had uh, one of my dancers uh, working with each group as an assistant. Um, and we had three days to work with each, each group on the stage. And then we could show that to friends and family um, who were able to stay in their bubbles. And we, you know, we could get somewhere between 80 and 120 people watching the performance. Um, so that was fantastic to be working again. Um, and then actually that went straight into 
um, working with English National Ballet on this um, on a film um, project, which was just for digital when we started to imagine that um, and discuss it. And then that has now um, has has the potential. It's it's now going to perform at Sadler's Wells also, where they will have a um, shows in November with up to I think it's four hundred and four hundred and twenty um, per performance. So again, it will be socially performance. People will sit in their bubbles. Socially distanced performance. Um, people will sit in their bubbles and. Um, We'll see, you know, we'll see how that goes. So with those performances, some not too far away, um, and, you know, we are still in the midst of this um, pandemic, which is affecting us all. Um, how you described sort of how you've been working with them um, in a socially distanced manner, and how do you think that um, the reduced audience may affect your feeling about your work, may be affected by this reduced socially distanced audience because for you were talking about the Coronet Theatre and for those who aren't in London and don't know it, it's a very intimate theatre and, and this is quite the opposite. Sadler's Wells is enormous and normally holds, you know, a couple of thousand of um, uh, seated audience members. So I'm just wondering how, as the creator of this work, how that translates for you. Well, I think the, you know, generally when you're thinking about a performance at a particular venue, you know, you're kind of thinking about the impression that it will have with the proximity to the audience. And, you know, the proximity at somewhere like the Coronet is very different to the proximity at somewhere like Sadler's Wells or the Coliseum or the Opera House. Or, um, and I, I don't know how it will be to have, you know, 400 people in there. Um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. You know, yeah. in the in National Youth Dance Company performing there, when we had you know sixty or eighty people or a hundred people in the audience, um, it was it, it wasn't quite at, like a performance mm. as we know it. Yeah. Um, you know, you're. You know what it feels like to have a packed out audience or something like this. And actually, when you've got, um, I don't know, a, a fraction of that, when you have 15 percent or 20 percent or um, it, it feels different, but it's still a sharing. And, you know, actually, after after six months of not having that, to be able to share that together felt a fantastic privilege. Um, and, you know, we were all watching it we were all going through a journey together that's to do with movement and darkness and light and you know the impact of music as you sit there in the dark and um you know that's a that's a wonderful journey to experience together and you don't have it watching online you've got something else you know and as you say, we are all going through this together and we will experience these types of performances together. Um, did your dancers give you in the, from, the, from the, the youth company, did they give you any feedback about how it felt for them to be on stage? Um, as you say, not having that packed house, did they have any, any, any sort of experiences that they shared with you? Um, I mean, from what I heard of them, they, 
from from them they loved being on the stage you know for them um it was a it was a privilege to be on you know a, a large stage um with that big auditorium and you know sometimes there's you know it's often very dark and you can't really see except for the house you know you can't see people's faces and um so i think they had a very good time just being on the stage and experiencing that yeah i can imagine they must be happy to be back after such a a long period away from performing live mm. Yes. Well, let's talk about um, your own career now. You're training with the Royal Ballet School and then your journey to dancing with the Saddlesworth Royal Ballet, which goes on to become the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Tell me about your, your ballet beginnings. Well, I, was, uh, I went along to classes with my two sisters um, and I was from a one-parent family, so it was easier to have all the kids go to a class together. Um, that gave my mum a little bit of time off and I wanted to, I, I enjoyed dancing ballet. Uh, I enjoy, enjoyed having something that you could practice and get better at and see the results of that practice. Um, and I chose ballet as a career, um, and went to the Royal Ballet School, um, I had, a, I had a very good time at the Royal Ballet School, um, enjoyed it immensely. Um, but in my third year, I injured my, my shoulder, my arm, and I lost the use of my shoulder. So I could put one arm up and I couldn't put the other arm up at all. That lasted about nine months. And they gave me, um, they allowed me to repeat my final year. And then I got into Saddler's Wells and um, there was a lot about that I enjoyed. You know, they used to do a lot of um, new ballets and, and triple builds and tour everywhere. We were touring for eight months of the year, um, eight shows a week. And, um, you know, we, I, I enjoyed much of that. Then we started to do more of um, the larger ballets, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, um, and hundreds of those shows. And I, at that time, I was thinking, mm, I, I don't enjoy doing this ballet night after night after night for months on end. Um, and I don't know if this is for me. And I could, I could hear myself kind of complaining about uh, this, this kind of life I was living when, you know, actually it's a, it's a great life. It's a very privileged life. And it's, you know, for many people, it's, it's a great fit. And I just felt like at that time, it was no longer a great fit for me. And I didn't know quite what would be. Um, but I knew that it was time to move on in some way. Um, and at that time, there were several others that were kind of, there had been a shift in the company. And there, there was also a shift because Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet that was based at Sadler's Wells was negotiating a deal where they would go to Birmingham and become Birmingham Royal Ballet, which is quite close to where I grew up from. Um, and I, you know, all of these things were 
coming together and I thought, oh, I don't know, I want to do something else. And um, some, some of the other people at Sadler's Wells, Jennifer Jackson, Susan Crow, Michael Batchelor, um, actually also Stephen Sheriff, um, Sheila Stiles, Graham Lustig, they all decided to leave together and form a company called Dance Advance, which I became part of. We all left together and we had some um, we had some work by Kenneth Macmillan, who made a piece called Sea of Troubles on us that uh, that first season when we started to, to work as a, you know, a small group of eight dancers. Um, piece by Chu Son Go, an American choreographer. Um, and they, many of those dancers in the company, Dance Advance, were also choreographers. So they kind of made a, a group piece together. Um, I think it was just Stephen Sheriff and I who didn't choreograph at that time. Um, and so that was my kind of step out of Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet. Um, and I did that for, I did that for about six months, I think. And they were wondering what, Dance Advance were wondering what they would do for their next season and who they might follow up with choreographically. And um, they had mentioned Lloyd Newson, um, who came to see us perform. And he, he said actually after, after watching us, he realized he couldn't, uh, he couldn't really take on a whole company and um, make a piece on them. So, but he, but he did ask me if I would leave and join him on the next project. And I, I didn't know uh, Deviate's work at the time. Um, and I saw, uh, I, went, I went to see a, a lot of it on video. Um, and I thought it was fantastic, really exciting. Um, and I wanted to uh, work with him on that next project, which became Dead Dreams of Monochrome Men. Um, and it was a very, very different process for me. It was, you know, there was a lot of improvisation, a lot of the other dancers. There was um, Douglas Wright, who'd been working with um, Paul Taylor in the States. There was Nigel Charnock um, and Lloyd and myself. And they had very different ways of working. Uh, physically with with movement you know nobody would come in and do plies and tendus and fondues and rondes and um so they'd be rolling on the floor or they'd be you know um flinging their arms around and releasing and or running or so it's physical in a very very different way and when we started to do certain things in the process um you know, there were times that I felt like I wanted to be able to let go of my classical technique, and yet I couldn't easily let go of it. Well, I couldn't at all let go of it. Um, it, it was no longer under my conscious control, some of it, you know, maybe the way I held my head. It's on your the, body, in your body. Yeah, it's totally embodied from all of those years of training, and you know, that was great for being in a a company that is doing pure ballet. But, you know, as soon as you step outside of that and the context changes, 
you realize, well, I don't necessarily have the freedom that I would actually like to have at the moment. So um, I started to look for ways that I might undo some of that work without, you know, I didn't want to lose my technique. Um, I didn't want to lose my facility, but I did want to be able to, you know, put that on and then take it off. Um, and, and I was curious as to how possible that was and um, whether it would be, you know, positive in its, uh, in its contribution to kind of um, how much you can how much you can do, how much, you know, how much facility you can use, how much technique you can use. Um, and physically, how did you make that trans transition? How did you get to a point of being able to remove that classical, you know, armour or and then be able to enable your body to move differently? Well, it, I kind of started to get into um, release technique. Um, a lot of the people that I had met in, um, I, I think as I, as I went freelance and went into a different circuit, some of the people that I was meeting, um, when I started performing with um, DVA or when I started to perform with um, Laurie Booth, who was an improviser, a lot of that work took me into contact improvisation which took me into maybe um, actually working with Laurie Booth. One of the um, performers there was Scott Clark, who had been working with Siobhan Davis' company. And he was doing his training as a Feldenkrais practitioner. Um, so a lot of, uh, a, a lot of that I, that I became aware of and then um, release technique, body-mind centering, a lot of the... Um, techniques that were more focused inside, more in a kind of somatic practice. Um, I, yeah, I kind of got into those elements more and, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a quick process to let go of, um, let go of holding patterns um, or even notice, you know, where they are and, um, yeah, how to how to address them really? Because when I see you perform, you you can still tell there is such a grounding in in technique, but it it feels like the roots under a tree rather than you know the the flourish of the leaves on top. And you know the way in, the way in which you move it, yeah, and the way in which you choreograph is 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 so beautiful. Um, and as you sort of went on this journey, you worked with you know, creators like um, Michael Clark, for example, um, and you mentioned DV8 there. What was it like working um, with those, you mentioned DV8, but Michael Clark, et cetera, in terms of how that influenced you? And I'm really interested to know what inspired you to start creating your own work as well. As you, as you mentioned, back in, in the company Dance Advance, you were the only one not creating, and here we are mm. talking about you as you know, the, the creator of one of the most important today in this country. I think all of those, um, all of those people that I worked with, you know, fed into my understanding or changed the context 
of how I sat within um, those different contexts with the technique and the personal practice that I had. Um, and, you know, I learned different things from Michael, who was, you know, obviously impeccably trained classically with a beautiful uh, body and, you know, feet and the way he could uh, could move really. And, you know, he left the Royal Ballet School before his the end of his upper school training and went to Rombert and started his own company. And, um, you know, the influences that he was bringing in from people like Lee Bowery and Body Map and Charles Atlas and um, kind of a very art, um, art world perception. And um, then, you know, working with also Stephen Petronio as he, at the point that I started to work with Michael, um, it was not long before he got involved with Stephen Petronio. And then Stephen Petronio's approach, although some of the dynamics and the, the use of the body might appear similar in certain ways, the approach was from such a different place because the approach of Stephen Petronio's was more through um, techniques that might be release techniques. Um, and obviously he'd done a lot of his training with Trisha Brown and um, he'd also done a lot of body-mind centering. So Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen's work, particularly on this musculoskeletal kind of relationship and, you know, seeing how those practices fed into the body and the result of those in the aesthetic implications and how that was used in the work for, for each person was kind of fascinating to me. And then when working with Laurie Booth, who had, um, you know, a background in many of the release techniques and Steve Paxton and contact, having studied at Dartington, um, and then also some capoeira background, um, and how that can influence movement and movement facility, movement possibilities, um, dynamics, quality. Um, that all just became fascinating to me. And a lot of the um, a lot of the ways that we would work with Laurie, I did a project with him um, called Spatial Decay and initially with Scott Clark and Jill Clark. So it was a quartet kind of piece and Laurie taught us improvisation over the process. And a lot of that was about looking at the stage as a blank canvas and it, you know, who's coming on, what color are they painting it? What's the texture, what's the rhythm, um, what's the pattern, the placement on the stage and where do you choose to come on next and with what color, in what place, in what relationship? Um, if you're two people on stage, is it two solos? Is it a duet? Um, are you creating a counterpoint to what they're doing? Um, are you amplifying what they're doing? So they're kind of compositional concerns, um, but they're made in the moment on the improvised journey of a piece. And 
in the end, that piece, I think we did it together two or three times. And then Laurie and I performed it as a duet for um, a few years after that. And, and that kind of got me very interested in creating, I guess, because that's what we were doing in the, um, in the performances. And I, I always feel like challenge is, personal challenge is something that you grow from. Mm-hmm. And I, after a few years of performing with Laurie in an improvised duet, I felt like the, the, the scariest thing would be to do uh, a solo, an improvised solo or, um, and there are many different ways of doing improvisation where it can be totally open or it can be structured um, where you have certain landmarks and um, a, a certain framework. Um, and I wanted to create that with Michael Hulse, who was the lighting designer um, that I had been working with on Spatial Decay on with in Laurie's piece. But um, he wasn't available at that time. Or, or we started to work on it and I injured my knee, actually. I tore my cruciate ligament. Um, and so we didn't start work until later. But uh, yeah, it, it was really from improvisation that I... I became I became interested in what might be considered choreography, um, and that's interested in what could be considered choreography, which is almost an understatement for for your work um, today, of course. But in in your own words, um, and as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a very specific interest in flow and energy. You've mentioned very much there about um, the the inner body and the inner mind, and also this exploration of movement, light, and music, which is so, of course, evident in in your work. As so, I just wanted to, in your own words, how to listeners, how do you describe your own choreographic language? um well i i don't if i can help it because i I to um i would hope that it will uh continue to evolve and um to a certain extent it's it's informed by things that i've done in the past but it's also informed by dancers that I work with on any project. So the, the language would be kind of different if I'm working with um, someone like Dixon MBI, who's had a background in popping um, and is fantastic at that um, before he became trained in contemporary dance um, or Dana Foras, who's classically trained um you know at the royal ballet school and the royal ballet company before um coming to contemporary dance and um or sylvie or um you know each each person i think feeds into that language and um kind of raises to to me another perspective um on on movement language but some of the concerns I guess are 
um, kind of freedom of movement around joints um, and how uh, load is is taken throughout the whole body. I got particularly interested in um, tensegrity and the and also biotensegrity, which is how tensegrity is um, viewed within the body as a structural um, model. Um, and you know some of that is informed by my practice in structural integration and rolfing. Um, which I trained in in 92, 3, 4, um, and then practiced for 20 years. Um, and how the, how the foot is capable of opening um, as load is placed, you know, shifted into the foot and how that talks to the knee, how that talks to the hip and rises up through the pelvis and the ribs and the spine and comes through the arm, you know, those kind of, um, and how the soft tissue allows that movement or restricts that movement. Um, those issues might be used in body work as, a, an, as, an, as an assessment of um, where things are held or restricted or blocked. Um, and in, in a rolfing session or something like that, you would be looking to create the conditions where movement can go through. And so all of the joints can talk to each other. Um, and I guess, you know, that's that approach and the aesthetic implications of that work done is something that I, has become part of my choreographic analysis um, and something that informs also my teaching. So if, if during a process I'm working with the dancers, um, you know, we'll often be addressing certain concerns um, and we'll bring those up, you know, often amongst ourselves for, you know, if someone's got an issue that is held in the lower back or someone's held in the shoulders or someone's held in the ankles or, um, you know, we'll kind of work on exercises that might address that, might approach that. Um, and then we'll look at how that affects, you know, what the aesthetic implications of working on that are. Um, and yeah, how that might affect movement in light. So we're putting those things together a little bit. Um, I've kind of... No, that's, it sounds so beautifully, beautifully anatomical um, is how you're describing it to me. And of course, I have had the, the privilege and the pleasure to have seen your work. And I know many um, listeners will um, jump onto your website and uh, really have a, a, a good look to really understand what, what it is that you're describing, because it does come through in your work where you talk about how you know the, the load on on the muscles and the body and the responsiveness and and how you create with that and work and bringing in the work that you have done with the lighting design and Michael Hiles that you've just discussed, you know, in your your exploration of this you know light and music and movement, and I love the way you use light in your work. It is. Thank just you. beautiful it's so absorbing uh, so I'd, I'd love to know sort of where this particular um 
uh, element has become so important to and integral to your creative process? Well, when Michael and I met, must have been in the, you know, around 1990, 89, 90, you know, um, as I said, when I was working with Laurie Booth on Spatial Decay, and we were both interested in the work of Jennifer Tipton and a, a great American lighting designer, and Dana Wrights, who was a, a release technique dancer, um, and the way they worked together. Um, and Dance Umbrella um, invited Jennifer Tipton and Dana to lead a workshop. Um, Michael had already worked with Jennifer Tipton. I took part in the workshop, which, um, which was fascinating and really um, learned a lot from that. And Michael and I wanted to um, create a process where lighting could be one of the first elements or it'd be the first element that existed. You know, often in, there's a hierarchy, well, there are many hierarchies in, in dance, traditional dance um, and ballet. Um, so, you know, you get that kind of principal soloist or even levels of soloist and then um, choreophase and corps de ballet. And, you know, in the hierarchies of creating, I would say that music is the, the one that's in their first um, set, then maybe costume, then somewhere down the line where you just get to light it before it goes on stage, you know, which might take a, a bit of a day before, um, before you present it. And, you know, changing that hierarchy where we could have light at the very beginning of a process. So you had an opportunity that they could inform each other. And we, we were lucky enough to be given space um, at, uh, by Chris, Christopher Bannerman um, at Middlesex University. Um, and we, over a, over a summer holiday, um, and we started to, uh, Michael created a rig and um, a way that the lights might move from, you know, opening the back and then drifting this forwards, widening it sideways, coming into a diagonal, you know, something like this. And I would go in there and work um, actually with Dana Forrest and James De Maria. Um, and we would, um, we would look at movement and see what, what worked coming into the light? You know, how many different ways could we come into the light? Which way was better? What kind of pace? Um, what direction? Um, what quality? And then, you know, if we were bringing this movement forwards, what, um, what was the relationship between the intensity of the light, the dynamic of the movement? How many different kind of juxtapositions could work? Um, and it, how what the duration of that needed to be before it opened out to the side how long could you hold that state for um and that was a you know we we created a piece then we created a piece called uh unspoken um and that was about a 55 minute duet and it was a very informative process 
and a very informative work. You know, the music came later. Um, and I, you know, we, we didn't continue to have that as our perfect process every time. We didn't always start with the light after that, but we, it was certainly in there for being near the beginning. We might sometimes start the process if we had, if we had eight weeks to work, we might have two weeks at the beginning, um, a week in the middle and a week at the end, you know, try for something like that. Um, or we might have uh, two weeks of movement in the studio and then have a week in the light to see how that stuff might work together. Then you take that information back to the studio, kind of knowing what those relationships are. Um, so I think after that, I, I always worked with the intention with light from the start. And, you know, how, how you work with light is a budgetary issue, really. Um, and rather than going for, if we, had a, if we had a certain budget, rather than making a piece with six dancers and knowing that that's where the money is going, we would make a solo or a duet and know that the money is going to be on getting the facilities to work in the light because that was an important part of our process. And that was, you know, that was always tricky because generally um, I would say that to some extent success, successful um, growth was measured on the amount of dancers on stage and the size of your work. Um, and if after 10 years you're still making solos and duets, then it seemed like, oh, you know, you need to get bigger. Um, and that means you need more people on stage. But the more people on stage, you know, at that point, it seemed the more difficult it is to focus a project onto working with light as a partner. Um, and, you know, actually in, you know, recently we've made some larger works with more dance, like 18 dancers. We did a, we did a project in Greece um, called The Thread, working with Vangelis doing the music and Michael doing the lighting. Um, and that was kind of possible to work with um, more dancers and the light as a partner. But, you know, we'd had 20, 20 odd years of experience by then, 25 years of experience by then. Um, and that piece had a larger budget than, you know, Russell Malefant Dance Company would, would get. So. Um, yeah, your work certainly feels like uh, when, when you watch it, that, and I love the way you describe light as being a partner in, in this creative process, a partner in the performance as well, because it certainly does feel like there is a another element, not just as you say, another element that's been you know put onto the end, but an intrinsical, true essence, a true presence that's created through the lighting. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about your know, budget and the you know how you're allocating the resources, which are obviously quite finite, and and mm -hmm. how that affects you know the 
at a point through the perception on what is considered success when in fact you know your work you know it's not about the size is it and so it's really interesting actually the large is so fundamental all about that resources and how you you know how you allocate it really for um yeah i mean there aren't so many places other than theaters that have those light resources that you can work in from you know during a process and to to afford um a facility that has lighting bars and a lighting desk and you know that is um it's it's really difficult um you know which is probably one of the reasons you know i'm sure there are many others but that's one of the reasons that you know many people don't or can't work that way um you know we were we were fortunate to have been given that space that informed us right at the beginning um and you know we've had michael and i uh, have had processes where we've had to bolt on lighting at the end but we've been together over the process and so we've been speaking about how this could um how this part could develop this choreographic part could develop if we had this light here we'd want to put everything on the diagonal um or we'd want this to come down panels or um you know if it's if it's lit in a backlight wash then we have the whole space um or side light you know that it's not defined on the floor we're very open um yeah i love the i love the work of the coronet because the way in which the light was so liquid and and really did change the 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 landscape and the of of the stage it it moved and it, it brought a conversation between the dancers it was that i don't think could have been achieved without the lighting in fact right. was, yeah really really sensational beautiful well that was i mean at the coronet that was um that was using video design as animation um for for constantly changing shifting lighting and i think after you know a lot of that work with michael you know eventually got me into seeing how the the light and the dark textures the space it textures the body and i i love to see that texture changing and there aren't so many um you can do that to some extent with generic theater lighting you know i think michael did that in 98 in 2 where he created a box with a boundary around the side that was brighter um and that really kind of highlighted the periphery of the body as it passed through the brighter parts um and we also explored texture um with the video um video artist Jana Banowski in Afterlight and in 2009 and that um that possibility of creating ever changing patterns and shapes and textures um that became really 
important to me somehow. And I, I um, started to work with Paniotis Tamaris, um, who's a, a Greek uh, video designer. And um, I used him on the pieces in at the Coronet, the space between, and also in the last company piece, Silent Lines. Yeah, beautiful. And the piece with English National Ballet uh, that we've just um, just finished. The other um, element that you are, well, another a key element um, of, of yourself is your pursuit of academics. You, you know, sort of mentioned uh, a, a few disciplines that you have um, already explored and studied. But this pursuit of academic studies in anatomy and physiology and biomechanics, it hasn't ceased, has it? And you're constantly doing research projects, which you're, you've got some going at the moment. Where, um, what's this curiosity, this constant curiosity to, to undertake this ongoing research? Um, I think a little bit about what we were discussing before with um, kind of holding patterns. And, you know, I think as any dancer um, wants to have maximum range and potential for articulation and dynamics and freedom of movement around the joints, um, between, the, between the bone joints and the, the soft tissue joints, um, and how that all works together to kind of sequence through the body. Um, and, you know, techniques are always evolving. So, you know, people that were looking at movement in particular ways, say through Mabel Todd and the thinking body, Lulu Sveigard, um, so, or, you know, looking at dance with Alexander or, um, you know, practitioners that use more somatic experience or, and it always seemed to me that classical ballet is a fantastic technique. And at the same time, the range of choreographers that people are working with now you know, sometimes it would be really helpful to have some of the information that is from, that is not embodied in classical techniques. So, you know, how can you, how can you do that within a classical company or, um, or how would, even outside of a classical company, within a classical practice, you know, training of children, training of at schools, how would you do that so that people are maximally prepared to do work by Forsyth or Akram Khan or Hofesh Schechter or Crystal Pite, as well as Sleeping Beauty and Swan Lake and um, so that... Which is very much expected now of dancers yeah. to have this physicality that is so versatile to be able to really take on an, a huge repertoire of work. It's quite the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. It's a massive challenge. And you've got to, you know, some of those lines of work, they're, they're a practice that, you know, how long does it take you to really understand a practice? It's got to be like 10, 15 years to get deep 
into that. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you're trying to perform a work, but you don't understand what that work is necessarily embedded within, then it will be more superficial than the possibilities of that. So that, um, you know, there's always a kind of an exploration of how far we can, um, we can journey out into this process together. Um, you know, fortunately, I understand a certain amount of classical um, understanding um, and analysis. Um, and I can kind of feed in um, other, other elements as I think they might help. But, um, you know, as, as work is evolving, there are different people that I become familiar with, you know, and it's so easy to get familiar with them now, not just through books, but through YouTube tutorials or um, Instagram, um, IGTV, um, and you can become aware of people that are anywhere in the world. Um, you know, since I did the Rolfing training, I, you know, that opened up. Um, an avenue into a lot of the bodywork practices. And, um, you know, I continue to follow Tom Myers, who has um, looked into something called anatomy or evolved something called anatomy trains um, and how that might work in movement and yoga. And that's quite a different approach to muscles having a, an origin and an insertion and looking at mechanical movement of limbs. Um, so they all, I think all of these approaches have an aesthetic implication. Um, there's a, um, I've been interested in the work of Gary Ward, who wrote a book called What the Foot, um, which also has aesthetic implications about, it's, it's really looking at how all of the joints talk together again. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, a great, um, what would you call him, uh, coach, I guess, uh, David Gray, who's, who I've also been looking at um, and done some sessions with, which uh, I find them really fascinating how they change movement. Um, and, you know, they're not looking at that in relationship to classical ballet or contemporary dance or... Um, you know, these kind of movement arts, but I think more and more they're becoming, people are becoming aware of movement being an important part of, you know, whether it's football, rugby, tennis, um, but what, how, how the movement potential around a joint is affecting the whole and how that hip is in relationship to the 33 joints in the feet, in the foot, you know, um, and how that's passing through the, um, the ribs or the spine or the, um, you know, what the soft tissue is doing in that relationship, how it affects the head, um, you know, all of those kind of things that really are about movement. And I, yeah, I, I like to explore that and see how that might influence the, the health and safety really and mm. the long of a dancer in work because it's you know if you're putting a lot of strain I mean those some of the big jumps that you might have in classical work um, 
you know, it's a lot of load and impact. And yeah. um, if you if you do that incredibly well and all the joints are functioning and, you know, that load is distributed well through the body, then, you know, you, you minimise injury and impact. Whereas um, if if one joint is taking a lot of that load um, and the repetition is constant, and even if it's just a little bit too much um, each time, you know, it soon builds up and, you know, it, uh, it impacts the body. You so, mentioned, yeah, you mentioned longevity there. You've been dancing yourself over the last uh, couple of decades as you've also been running the Russell Maliphant Dance Company. Um, and you've also had your injuries, as you've mentioned. Um, I'm interested in uh, knowing sort of how, how you keep dancing. I think that, you know, if you, have, um, if you have a personal practice that you can keep kind of ticking over, um, your, if you put your mind into your body for, a, a, you know, an hour and a half, for example, a day, um, and you're going deeper into that practice, then I think your body is better. It works better all the parts together than if you don't have that. Um, so I'm certainly, I'm certainly improved by that practice if I do that all the time. You know, sometimes uh, there might be, you know, periods in my life where I find that difficult to maintain. Um, but generally, I, I try to keep that as my baseline. Um, and, you know, teaching um, allows me to do that also, um, maybe slightly differently. Um, and then if I'm, if I'm putting myself in a work, then I know that I will need X amount of weeks or months to build up to a performance level. Um, and yeah, and there will be certain things that I'll have to mm. work through. And, uh, you know, you, you are looking to perform. So, um, you know, there are certain things that you need to have moving fluidly or sequentially or um, in a way that might not be so necessary if you are um, just looking to maintain a, a, a certain level of standard where you're not going to be on show. Yeah, you mentioned um, uh, your teaching there. So teaching is a, a very essential part of what you do and what the company also does. And um, looking at where the company is, you know, given the COVID situation, there's been a, a shift towards uh, digital dance and mm. making um, some of the, the sort of um, more uh, projects available and online company classes. How has the the shift towards the digital been for you and where you are with the company? Because you are heading towards the 25th anniversary. Um, what does what does that feel like for you? I mean, so much of what we do or what we have done before this time, you know, there's a kinesthetic learning and sharing. Um, and some of that 
is about a hands-on kind of work. You know, if a teacher puts a certain pressure on you, on your body in a particular way, and you understand how to let go of these muscles and you understand how to lengthen here, or um, that's a physical passing on of information, which kind of can be done without words or with minimal words. And if you try and do that purely with words, it's, it's another language that you have to use. And I think we're, you know, over the past six months, we've been driven more into finding that um, possibility, capability, you know, of language um, or image, imagery, um, to pass on that information. Um, and, you know, in, in teaching recently, you know, a lot of it is Zoom. Yeah. Um, so your camera is in a set point and there's no point teaching in a studio because most people that are on the other end of the line only have, you know, six foot square of space anyway in front of the computer screen. So a lot of that, um, a lot of that potential is, is um, it's not about moving through space as much. It's through, it's about moving in the space that you're in with changing qualities, um, which is interesting. And I, there's, you know, there's infinite potential even in that restricted model. Um, and that's fascinating. And that has a, a lot of interest. Um, and I, you know, of course I miss being in the studio with people also. Um, and I miss that movement through space at times. Um, but I, I think at the moment, that's not something that you could do on a Zoom class. Um, but there is a phenomenal amount that you can do standing still, um, you know, without moving your feet, you know, just moving all of the joint in all of the joints in different combinations through the body and um, different pressures and um, different layers of the body um, and skin layer and then going one layer deeper and then, you know, going into the bones or going into the organs or um, going into the fluids. And, you know, all of those things are, um, you know, there's a huge amount of range potential in those and explorations that is potential in those and exploring your own anatomy. It's interesting that um, within those six foot confines, the the attention or the focus turns back to the body, which is where your attention often is, rather than, as you say, moving through the space, which is quite interesting how, you know, the situation has reflected almost your own interests um, right. very much in the internal. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, two is, you know, it happens within a two metre square um, and, and shift also, which is one that was lit from the front uh, in panels, you know, it also, it, it restricts movement to within more or less the range that your body is in. You can, you can shift um, around certain, um, you know, rotations and tilts and, um, 
hikes and you know things mm. like the body of relationships but uh it's about the relationship of one part to another which is is an analysis that uh rolfing uses you know rolfing divides the body into kind of eight sections and then looks at the relationship of the the head to the neck or the neck to the chest or the chest to the abdomen the abdomen to the pelvis pelvis to the thighs you know is it tilted is it rotated is it shifted forward or back or um you know those kinds of things which are very choreographic to my mind my analysis of movement and with the 25th anniversary horizon coming your way i'm i'm interested in um how you are or if you are um, thinking about legacy and thinking about how you are, and we're talking here about you know the digital digital space, but how you are able to capture your particular approach and pass that on. You mentioned teaching and passing it on through you know your classes and through your dancers and through your work and through the digital. But in terms of how. How do you cap capture that and ensure that that legacy exists going forward and beyond? Well, the, uh, <laughs> the, the pandemic and having time at home during lockdown, um, we started to organise something, you know, called the, our digital archive of, um, of work, which is really, you know, it's just, it's just past performances that we have on VHS tape or Hi8 tape or mini DV or, you know, which are all dotted around all the Betacam or, you know, all of these different devices, which are kind of obsolete because you don't have a player for those anymore. Yeah. Hundreds of these tapes and, you know, kind of, it, it's often coming through my, look, do I throw these now? Do I, um, do I put them in an archive box? But they all, you know, actually, you get some out of the, you know, the place that they've been in storage and they've got damp and, you know, a lot of them are ruined or they'll play three seconds and then freeze and three seconds and freeze and three seconds and, you know, so they're all jumpy and it's like, well, why have I kept these for 25 years and, you know, like this and I can't play them anyway and I've got to kind of get a player to, watch them to know that they don't work or they do work and um yeah so that's been a job that's been put off for, for years and years and years and you know having some of that time at home you're like okay well this is one of the things that actually now i can start going through and if there's anything in there you know we can um put it up but recording has got so much better over yeah over the years and you look at some of these things that were you know they weren't wasn't a life well it was some people's lifetime ago but you know it was like, like 30 years ago um and you know we just didn't we weren't doing the the performance to have a great record mm. we were doing the performance and recording it so that we could see it and work on it so that the next performance would be better um, but it was never about getting that um, recording out there as um, as a means in itself, you know, as yeah. a documenting and yeah. sharing the entertainment factor of it. Exactly. Yeah. So the you know the the lighting for them, it was always difficult to capture low level in low levels of light, and a lot of the work was done in low levels of light. 
for parts of it. Um, and that was kind of part of the part of the logic of it. You know, there's a there's an experience that happens as your eye adjusts to a low level of light and you get drawn into this and then gradually it gets bigger and bigger and you're um, it's coming out at you and um, there's a movement in the audience as they get drawn in or pushed out or um, affected by those levels of light. Um, and that's a choreographic movement that's uh, um, intended in the work. So, you know, if you're not going to get that in, in mm. the recording, which, you know, of course, ways of recording have got so much better now. Um, and so what we could put together now is, 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 is quite different, but, uh, still there are, there are good performances that I think, um, are interesting to see in, from those early days. And that's, you know, we've been, we've been organizing a, a bit of that and, um, you know, they'll, some of those four, um, recreations you know or the potential for recreation so that we could or restagings mm -hmm. of of some of the works um and i i like to restage things so that like personally so that i can keep adjusting them to what i'm seeing on the dancers that are um interpreting those kind of parts and, and so it, it becomes a, a live um dialogue that we're shifting together um, so that the, the framework the structure the, you know the the main part of is is together but um, it might shift in in other ways so uh, and looking to the future I uh, I know that you've got a, a few dates in the diary potentially for Germany, which are opening up, obviously, or have opened theatres and dances has returned much earlier um, than most, well, mostly across the world, in fact. Um, look, obviously, the, the future is so hard to predict these days, and who knows yes. whether or not those shows will go ahead. But what are, what are you looking forward to? What is the, the future horizon for Russell Maliphant and for the dance company look like for, for you? I'm looking forward to being in the studio. Um, I'm looking forward to working with um, dancers to create something new in light. Mm. And I, whatever that's for, whether that's for digital output or theatrical output um, or any other way that we haven't perceived yet. Um, Virtual reality output. Yes, absolutely. You know, whatever that is, I think my, you know, a lot of my enjoyment is um, in the studio and um, creating, exploring, really, uh, exploring process, um, exploring language and how um, different languages can inform each other so that there's not a hierarchy to movement language um, and actually something that's coming in from rugby or osteopathy um, or coaching, you know, any of those different sources can 
equally inform movement as much as um, Shiketi or um, uh, Cunningham or yeah. Martha Graham or you know any of the great techniques that are um, around and uh, how those how those things might affect quality they might affect aesthetics and how those can be utilized in movement potential and movement awareness. And now that we've sort of looked forward somewhat um, without this crystal ball, looking back over the last two and a half decades, um, do you have a piece of work that is exceptionally important to you? Um, you know, you've created such an incredible work, you know, push, fall and you know, of, of late, you know, second breath, silent lines, afterlight, you know, still occurring, conceal, reveal, you know, the list goes on and you've talked about some of them. But is there a particular piece that is really important to you and why? I, I, no, they're all important to me for different reasons. Probably, um, I mean, two, has, is, two is the piece that we've been performing the longest in a way. Um, and I think that uh, that's probably one of the pieces that has informed and, uh, yeah, probably has informed me the most. Um, and also the process of working on that, you know, it was was created on Dana for us. It was, um, it was later performed by... Uh, Sylvie Yilem, Carlos Acosta, Roberto Bolle, um, Daniel Proietto. Um, yeah, there's many, yeah. many different Yeah, it is, it's, a, it's an unfair question to ask you to cho choose essentially from your children, <laughs> as it were, yeah. from your creations, yeah. But I think having, having, having a piece that is set and yet um, kind of adjusted on many different people um that's that's been interesting um i've i've enjoyed having that uh, to work on and also uh you know seeing seeing dana through those different stages and ages um performing a work and still uh still being able to grow in it that's um yeah, Dana's been, you know, quite quite an important uh well you know partner of many things in your life and that partnership um, comes through so so uh, profoundly in, in your work and as my sort of second to last question really in terms of how that feels to to work together with someone over such a a, a, a career. I think that um, you know a partnership over that time it it's always it's changing it's evolving um, and it's exploring so um, you know, Dana's taken photographs for the company and myself. She's written music for the last um, five pieces that I've done. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think that's because she understands something that is informed by some of those earlier times, like the creation of two or... Um, she's seen us working on Afterlight or Push or 
Um, so we have a, an understanding of how that um, the process um, is um, what, what things benefit from in that process. And for me, choreography is where it's not it's not the movement per se. It's where movement and light mix as the visual elements and music comes in to link and uphold those visual elements as that auditory component. Um, and I think that she understands that process um, very, very well and she can contribute and um, work with those parameters that, uh, you know, just in, in, in the way that Michael and I have an understanding um, that's evolved over, you know, many uh, processes or many years. So then my last question to you um, is, as a choreographer, are there words of wisdom that you live by that you would share with others or words of advice that you would uh, pass on to other creators or those trying to forge a career perhaps in, in these times? Tough one. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a really tough one and a really tough one at this time because, I mean, at, really at any time, I would say, you know, do what you love, do what brings you energy um, and keep adapting as that, uh, as that shifts in your life. Um, because, you know, to go through sacrifices and hard times, if you're doing what brings you the most joy, if you're doing what brings you the most satisfaction and the, um, the most, yeah, really most satisfaction, most joy, then it accounts for a lot. And you never know when the uh, going's gonna get tough, you know, which it is, uh, it is tough at the moment. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, seeing some of the talent that is around and the young talent that is up and coming, um, you you know they're going to, it, it's not a question of talent, but they're going to have to have resources to maintain and sustain that. Um, that's what will make a difference in, in developing um, and exploring and um, I would say if they've got those things they're on a you know they're on a good path and and maybe also having um, a, a second string to your bow for me that was rolfing um, so you know when I was working as freelancer at the beginning um, if you're involved in a project but then that project goes astray and you have if you have nothing that's a that's hard financially um yeah. if you have something else that you also love that you can that can pick up the slack in those times um you know it's easier to roll through those tricky times that's really good practical advice and also inspirational advice so thank you very much for your time today that okay. has been a wonderful, wonderful exploration of your, your work. And so thank you again. And just for listeners, 
you can see the work of Russell Maliphant and in, in the company's digital archives and uh, performances that are coming up if you're lucky, for example, to be in Germany. So don't forget to follow the Russell Maliphant Dance Company on Instagram as well. Thanks so much. Don't forget to subscribe. We've got some incredible interviews coming up with principal ballerinas and renowned choreographers. We love dance and ballet, and we hope you'll love us. Join us on Facebook and Twitter.